Hello and welcome to Unbeknownst, a disability podcast. I'm your host, Bello Miguel Cipriani. As a child, one of my most frustrating moments came when my video game would freeze. No matter how hard I pressed down on the buttons, I couldn't get the game going again. Eventually, though, I would hit the reset button and start my journey to save Princess Peach all over again. My love for video games continued through my 20s, yet my relationship to them changed. In 2007, I was attacked and assaulted, and when I woke up, I was completely blind. After this life-changing event, video games helped me cope with going from being sighted to being in complete darkness. I approached my recovery of a series of levels I needed to pass, whether it was learning to read Braille, use a white cane, or use adaptive software. I also quickly noted that, like I did as a child, I often had to hit the reset button, albeit a mental one though. In time, I regained my career and independence. So I had gotten a point in my blind life where I was working full-time, traveling, doing everything I used to do when I was sighted, except for the gaming piece. One of the main reasons for that was because there wasn't really a set way to get back into gaming. I had to figure things out on my own, talk to other blind gamers, which this was a few years ago. We didn't have the social media web and networks that we have now, but it was tough to find ways to make things accessible, and so it just took longer. It proved to be one of the toughest battles for me because many video games are made without accessibility features for people with disabilities. Unlike every other aspect of blindness where I could buy a book, take a class, have a trained professional show me the best way to use my cane, take the bus, bake a cake, with gaming, there wasn't anything out there to show me how to make it accessible. And those controllers with up to a dozen buttons, well, they weren't all that easy to use either. I build controllers, I can adapt controllers to try and make it that someone can control, you know, 17 buttons, two joysticks with much less than that potentially. Someone might be one-handed, someone might be using chin control, Someone might use a single button and that's all they've got to access the computer. That was Barry Ellis, a technical specialist with special effects, a cherry that helps remove barriers for gamers with disabilities. There's various ways that we just try and find a way to make games more enjoyable. Because a lot of games are designed with an average person in mind, although the average person you'll never meet exactly. But two hands and and the ability to press every button and every control is is a real barrier for some people. So the charity tries to, to get around that. As Barry points out, there are many roadblocks for gamers with disabilities, yet there are ways to address all of them. When that happens, it changes lives. Someone who uses a single head switch to play and he'd never been able to play consoles until he started to get adapted controllers and I remember him saying thank you so much you've you've enabled me to play football for the first time in my life and something he couldn't do running around is it probably is a frustration that's hard to put your head into being able to do that as a child it's lovely to see how that just freed him up and and beyond being able to run around the same as for anyone really been able to fly and do superhuman things that aren't possible uh, is is part of the joy of gaming. And, and when you see that in people as well, that just equalizes everything. Like the guy in Barry's story, 
I too wanted to do things I couldn't do in real life. Without basic accessibility features, I couldn't even begin to play the game. So I reached out to Kay Pascal to explore the disconnect between gamers with disabilities and game developers. She's an expert and advocate for people with disabilities in the gaming world. Disability is really a mismatch in between the person and what they're interacting with, whether that's a step to get into a building or, you know, being able to play a game on your Switch with a mouse and keyboard. So just being able to access whatever it is you want to interact with without any barriers. During our chat, Kate shared the common conversations she has with developers about game accessibility. The conversation that I have with developers is, what are the things that, while in development, drive you mad? Whether it's post-processing effects like motion blur or screen shake, lens flares, things that they have control over while they're developing and they decide to turn off. It's like, you made the conscious decision to turn that off because you don't enjoy it. The likelihood that your players won't like it either is great because you're the expert as a developer. But at the same time, give your players those options. Kate also explained the common requests from people with disabilities that all developers should keep in mind. The two biggest requests from players are subtitles and remappable controls. For subtitles, we're making you know improvements, but right now, like they're absolutely tiny. And so I tell developers, hey, you really need to be testing on the products in which your players are using. So not everybody is playing on a screen that's 10 inches from their face. They're playing on 55-inch big screen TVs, um, you know, on a couch six or eight feet away. Test on these products for a good user experience. One of the first games I tried to play as a blind man was Mortal Kombat. This was because I had a lot of visual memory for it. I remember the characters, their special moves, and certain sounds cued me into whether I needed to block a punch or whether I was a goner. (laughs) But like many things I wanted to reenact from my side at life, as a blind man, I had to start at level one. As my thirst for video games grew, I began to search online for resources. One of my searches led me to find the Microsoft Inclusive Tech Lab and it put a big smile on my face. Bryce Johnson, inclusive lead for Microsoft devices, shares the unique philosophy behind this innovative lab. Microsoft Inclusive Tech Lab is a facility that we've built on campus. We really think about it as an embassy for the communities that we serve. It's intended to be built for people with disabilities, not about people with disabilities. In addition to the Inclusive Tech Lab, Microsoft has put a lot of effort into ensuring that the Xbox is accessible. Bryce has been a key part of this since the beginning. In 2014, we started to think about bringing assistive technologies to the console as part of our desire to meet our obligations to the 21st Century Telecommunication and Video Accessibility Act. Um, So we brought things like narrator to the console, high contrast themes, magnifier, beefed up our closed captioning, introduced controller level remapping at the console level. And while we, we launched those in 2015, We kept working because we knew we didn't want to just sort of meet that minimum bar. So we kept trying to improve those, the way that those things worked. We really dug into um, how 
does narrator should, should how should narrator feel on an Xbox One versus Windows? How should that content be read? While we were doing all of this, we actually were starting our hackathon. Every year at Microsoft, we do a one-week hackathon. And in 2015, we actually did this hackathon project where the Xbox Adaptive Controller was basically introduced. The controller that Bryce mentioned is one of the first of its kind. I connected with Chris Kajowski, who is the principal industrial designer on the Microsoft design team, to learn more. My role on the adaptive controller was that of industrial design lead. What what that means is that I, I take input and information really from, from experts. And in that case, it was, in the case of this product, it was Bryce. It was the foundations that we worked with, places like Craig Hospital, where we met with uh, occupational therapists and patients to get feedback on what this product should be. I take that feedback uh, and information and create the physical form of the product. What goes along with that is working with the engineering team to make sure that all of the electronics components that need to go in it fit. I'm responsible for making sure that the layout makes sense, that it's that it's usable. The experience of pushing the buttons is kind of meeting the experience bar that we that we set, and then also ensuring that you know it looks like a desirable product, that that it looks like an Xbox product in this case. To just talk about that for a minute too, that in hindsight, one of the most important aspects of this product in my mind as a designer was the the response that we got to the actual design of it. I don't know if they were surprised, but they appreciated the fact that it looked like an Xbox product, that it did not look like, you know, a piece of assistive technology or something you have to use versus wanting to use. To Chris's point, as a person with a disability, I rather use a mainstream product with accessibility features versus an adaptive device. A big reason for wanting a mainstream device over an adaptive one is that if the mainstream device breaks down, I could have it fixed just by anyone versus an adaptive device would probably require a consultant to be fixed. These consultants could be expensive and they're not always available in your city. So it could get pretty cumbersome just to even have it fixed. Many organizations have missed the mark when it comes to creating accessible products because they rely too heavily on automated tools. It's important to invite real people into the process early on. In order to get an accurate representative range, you need people from different backgrounds and different range of abilities. It makes products more user-friendly and more accessible. As a blind gamer, I have come across many video games that claim to be accessible, but miss the mark as far as working with popular accessible software. Bryce, who we heard from earlier, is passionate about working hand-to-hand with gamers with disabilities to make gaming more inclusive. I try to be an advocate inside of the company for people with disabilities. And I think it's one of the things that we do here at Microsoft. We really try to be customer-focused, but it's really hard to put yourself in someone else's shoes. In fact, I kind of really hate that phrase. I hate that whole idea of empathy as like, oh, well, just put yourself in someone else's shoes because it implies that it's simple and it's not. And we learned really quickly that simulators, they need to be used really intentionally and with great caution because the last thing that we do when we approach trying to understand what it's like to be someone with disabilities is we don't want to role play people with disabilities. That's that's the opposite of what we want to do. Um, we really want to involve people 
and get their words and sort of understand their journey and not try to simulate it on our own. I'm happy to share that over the last couple of years, I've gotten back into playing games regularly. I often even play online with sighted people who don't even know I'm blind. I have learned to outsmart the inaccessibility dragon and I'm now ready for the next level. Of course, running an accessibility firm, publishing house, and teaching on the side keeps me pretty busy, but I still feel like a part of the gaming community. Unbeknownst was produced by Jeff Larch with help by Maggie Fisher. And a big special thanks to our guest, Barry Ellis from Special Effect, Kate Pascal from Epic Games, and Bryce Johnson and Chris Kajowski from Microsoft. You could learn more about our guest or hear more episodes at unbeknownstpodcast.com. That's unbeknownstpodcast.com. If today's show reminded you of a gamer in your life, please share it with them. I am your host, Bello Miguel Cipriani. And remember, no matter your circumstance, there's no bigger disability than a closed mind and a cold heart. <laughs>